Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All right. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So super excited with our guest today. You know, it's a guest that, uh, you know, has, has been there, has done it, has done the full cycle uh, in this journey of building, scaling, financing, exiting. So you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Kevin Bennett. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks so much. Great to be here. So originally from Washington, Washington, D.C. I mean, how was, how was life growing up there? Life was great. Uh, super fortunate. Grew up with uh, a great family, and uh, I was the oldest of of three boys, of two younger brothers. It it was it was pretty idyllic, honestly. My parents. It was funny. I think I came by the entre- entrepreneurship bug, honestly. Um, my parents were entrepreneurs, and not not in the technology field, but but my dad graduated from law school and kind of hung up his own shingle and and got into a number of different careers, including real estate and representing professional athletes and trading currencies and commodities and all kinds of stuff. And that was just my model growing up was that you could, you know, if you were fortunate, you could, you know, go into business. And if you had ideas and, and had different, you know, models, the way you wanted to do things, you, you could start your own business. And, and, uh, and that was really informative. And actually my brothers and I are all entrepreneurs in our own ways, two of us, two of us in technology and one of them, um, on the investment side. So do you think that the, um, the whole entrepreneurial thing, you know, it was it was the inspiration that you got from from your parents. I think it was in some ways somewhat like subliminal. It just I just I just grew up knowing that that was a thing you could do, and, yeah. and you know, some some folks were doctors, some folks were lawyers, some folks worked in different industries, but some folks were entrepreneurs and just started their own businesses. And you could work for yourself, and you could uh, get started that way. And so I, I think that piece was, in hindsight, incredibly powerful. Um, the other piece that was incredibly powerful was my my parents really focused on giving back and everything from sponsoring classes of of kids to go to college to to we you know we went to soup kitchens and, and volunteered on the weekends and to to actually they dedicated you know profits from their businesses uh, to the local community they were operating in and so I also grew up with that model of, of giving back and mission and and that has really informed my view of, of how I spend my time, which is on mission-driven startups. And so that's kind of the entrepreneurship and the mission side coming together. And I think the other piece that was just really influential is that uh, my dad died of cancer when I was 14. And that was a really tough time. My family was really close and we kind of you know stayed close and, and helped us all get through it. But it was a really tough time. And I think it 
it taught me, you know, early on that even in kind of the toughest times, the darkest days, you can get through it. You just kind of keep going. And I think those are lessons uh, and the lessons I learned in entrepreneurship, the lessons about loss and resilience were incredibly powerful going through the entrepreneurial journey. I don't mean to be melodramatic about it, but there it's a roller coaster. There are ups and there are downs. And, you know, there are, there are moments where you think you have a rocket ship going to the moon and there are moments you think, you know, I might not be, this thing may not be around in six months. And I think having the, those lessons of resilience and, and just being able to put one foot in front of another um, have been incredibly helpful. And I've been fortunate to have uh, developed them. So then in terms of mindset, you know, as you're saying, uh, we may not be able to make it, you know, in the next six months. I mean, what's, what's that mindset? I mean, how, because it's, it's obviously, it's an emotional roller coaster to us and entrepreneurs, I guess. What did you learn from those tough times when you were in your teens and you guys had to, you know, go, you know, and endure, you know, like that a challenging situation for the family, you know, with the passing of your dad, how did you implement that so that you also have that same mindset when you're tackling uh, perhaps, you know, very uncertain situations when building and scaling a company? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if you think about it conceptually, you're often dealing in the context of complexity. Opportunity is often in complexity. You're trying to understand complex systems, complex problems, but the key is to break them down, to understand what are, the, what are the key drivers, what are the key things you have to get right, what are the key metrics you have to move, and being incredibly focused. One of the lessons I, I kind of try to internalize and, and tell myself and other folks in the team is you, you never need to count higher than three because there are never more than three things that matter. Right? Focus on the, the most important things in your business, the most important you know, metrics you're trying to move, and if you can get those right, then the other things follow. But if you, you know, solve for, you know, metrics seven through 10, but not one through three, seven through 10 aren't going to matter very much. And so uh, I think that's important in life when you have challenges as well. You just figure out what do I need to do to keep going, right? And whether that's, you know, committing to school, committing to your family, committing to, you know, the different pursuits that are going to help you move forward. That's, that's true. You just have to keep moving forward in life and entrepreneurship. It's all about moving forward. And, you know, you need realism and, and, and not to deny or understand or, you know, the challenges, but, but also optimism that you can move forward and that you can solve problems because life and entrepreneurship so much is just about problem solving and, and kind of prioritizing them accordingly. And in, in, in your case, you know, like it took a little bit of time, you know, to get into entrepreneurship because, you know, after college, you thought, you thought that the way to go was saying, you know, going into, into public service. But I'm sure that, you know, there are one of the key pieces that, that you learned was how to manage, you know, your agenda, your time. Yep. No, it, it's a great point. And, and I did really have that, you know, public service and giving back focus coming out of college. And, and that's that's where I started in, in public service and, and working for the governor of Virginia. And I, I grew up in Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., and, and working there. And that's where I learned, actually, to see another executive. And the governor of Virginia was an entrepreneur, actually. He, you know, co-founded Nextel, had, you know, co-founded Columbia Capital as a venture capitalist. Mark Warner was very successful in the private sector before he went to the public sector. And so learned from him as well when I was working for him in the public sector, but a lot of the lessons he had learned in the private sector. And, and one of them was really around managing his time and had a whole team that was scheduling him and focused on how to be strategic with his time and how to prioritize. And, and you know, my role was mostly in policy and then speech writing, but I really took those lessons around prioritization, around focus, around scheduling and time management. And that's actually helped me throughout my career as well. And, 
you know, went to law school, ended up in the Obama administration working on technology policy, which is where I really first engaged in technology. Um, I mean, I had a computer and a dial-up modem. I'm dating myself a little bit. I used Prodigy growing up and, and all that. But I was never a tinkerer. I didn't learn to take a computer apart and put it back together when I was 10. And I, you know, didn't become a, you know, lemonade stand tycoon when I was, you know, 11 or anything like that. But really where my entrepreneurial journey uh, in a real way gets started is I, I discovered the magic of technology as a driver enforcing function for change that you know saw that working on technology policy and working with uh, great companies and public private partnerships that you could see that technology was going to change every aspect of the world and was changing every aspect of the world. And so if you wanted to have a positive change in the world, it was all about leveraging technology to do that. And that was a huge opportunity. And so I ended up going to business school and then I've been working on mission-driven startups uh, ever since, uh, primarily in the DC area where I am today. So what what led you then to really going at it, you know, finally, because obviously you did uh, different different companies, different startups. I mean, you were at Personal, then O-Power, then LiveSafe, but then that really led you to Homes. And so, so what was that uh, sequence, you know, of events that really needed to happen for you to to really say, you know what, I'm I'm ready to to really do it on my own now. Well, I wanted to develop my own kind of pattern matching. So I wanted to get some reps. I wanted to get some experience working at different startups and, and all mission driven, but, you know, mostly post series A funded startups and, and learn about the journey, all mission driven, you know, personal health consumers protect their data um, and ownership of that data. You had Opower, uh, which was later stage when I joined and, and was there through the IPO and was a great experience. They were, you know, helping, uh, you know, residential energy users and homeowners, uh, you know, use less energy, help the environment that way. Live safe, you know, again, back to an earlier stage startup where it was about helping students stay safe on college campuses, incredibly powerful mission there. Um, and then Homestead helping, you know, make the housing market more affordable for buyers and sellers. Um, it was really exciting to be able to help people save money and really got into the broader economy and, you know, you know, kind of, that was my kind of, entry point into the fintech ecosystem in a way. And when we were selling that startup, I'd gotten to know the team at QED of Frank and Nigel and Matt. And they had this idea around Venmoto Refi that, that there are these consumer asset classes of debt, starting with SoFi and that SoFi moment of digitizing, making it more consumer friendly and fairer. And you had seen that happen in mortgage and you had seen it happen in you know, credit builders and neobanks, but auto there'd been innovation about who sits in the car, about what's under the hood, but you hadn't had that inner, you know, innovation really around financing and, and that kind of the consumer's financial relationship with their car. And so starting with refinancing, what we've been able to do is help consumers save money. We save them an average of $100 a month, have an NPS in the high 70s, low 80s. And that was the ability to really transform the American middle class and their relationship with their cars and save them money. And that was something I could get really excited about that, you know, Nigel and Frank and, and Matt saw it as a mission-driven uh, venture that actually had great economics behind it as well. And we were excited. And so I, I joined the team as the first CEO as they were getting, you know, up and running. And it's, it's been uh, just under four years since then and an incredible journey. And obviously now, you know, with, with Caribou, the, the advantage that you have as well is, is the experience that you got with Homes and with your previous company, because there you did the, the full life cycle no, as, a, as an entrepreneur. So what, what, was that, what was that exit process too for you? And, and also what kind of level of visibility does being a full cycle entrepreneur give you when it comes to the entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. In my case, there are a couple aspects to it. One, I'd worked in multiple functions. 
So I'd worked in product, in marketing, in business development, in different areas. And so, you know, you wouldn't actually want me writing any code. But other than that, I had experience in different functions. So I had a sense for how the different pieces of a startup or an organization worked. And I'd been, to your point, at different stages. I had seen the kind of Series A stage. I had seen the IPO process play out. Um, and then I had, you know, with, with Homesend, it was uh, my then co-founder, uh, Mike Spainhauer, goes by Spain. And we actually worked at all of these startups together. And he was the co-founder. We started from his couch. And, and he's our CTO, actually, at Caribou today. So long you know, working relationship. I think the other piece of it is you build relationships. And so many of the people that I work with today are people I worked with at Opower, or I had met at different startups along the way. And so it helps you build the network of people who you trust. Because when you're early stage, it's unproven. So people are you know, when they come and work with you, they're investing in you. They're investing in your story and your vision. And so that kind of relationship aspect of it's really important, as is kind of the culture you build in early days. Um, as far as the exit, I think you just learn a little bit about that process and what that looks like. And, you know, I had raised, you know, capital at at Homesend uh, through angels, family offices, venture funds. So I had a little bit of experience with that. And, and I thought that, that was, uh, found that to be very helpful in the in the life and journey of Caribou. And we've raised about $75 million at this point. And, and each stage is different, but it's, it's all been uh, an education and a creative and uh, the experience has been helpful for sure. So then with Caribou, what is the business model for the people listening? How do you guys make money? Yeah, it's a great question. So what we, uh, you know, true to the original vision is we thought there was an opportunity to build a, an online marketplace. You know, historically, First of all, most people didn't even know they could refinance their homes. Less than half of the population even knows that's something you can do. Most people know you can refinance, you know, or refinance your car. Sorry, most people know they, they can refinance their homes, um, but very few people know they can refinance their car. And in that case, what ends up happening is, you know, most folks don't get a great deal at the dealership. They end up, you know, paying, you know, above an efficient market rate by two to three points APR often, and. And they could save money. And so driving around and every month they're, they're you know, paying more than they need to on their financing or their insurance products. And there was a real opportunity to match them, build this matching marketplace that matched them with the best offers um, from credit unions, community banks, other lenders they may not know or be aware of, um, and other providers of insurance products. And so we built that and, you know, consumers can check the rates in seconds without digging their credit or giving up their social within 60 seconds or so. They can actually get firm offers of credit, and then they can go through that process online and make it easy. And as a result, as I mentioned before, you're saving an average of $100 a month on your payments, often getting thousands back in refunds from overpriced insurance products you had, um, have an NPS that high 70s, low 80s, depending on the month. Um, and we're really efficient because we're a technology platform, really efficient for our lending partners as well. And so they love working with us. So that's kind of how we got started. And, and the kind of go-to-market was around auto refinance and um, that's been really uh, successful so far. We've been very fortunate. And then we've added traditional auto insurance last fall. And as we've expanded the products we offer, we uh, expanded the brand from Motor Refi uh, to Caribou, which we launched uh, late last year uh, with the new brand, Auto Insurance Plus Refinancing. And we're uh, really excited, you know, early in 2022, but really excited about the continued progress traction and uh, more product launches coming. So you were alluding to before that you guys have raised 75 million from really great investors like QED, you know, the last round from Goldman Sachs, uh, which was the Series B, uh, I believe it was 50 million, you know, not, not bad for a Series B. 
Uh, but the the question here that comes to mind is when you are engaging those investors and you're really building trust and, and you're giving them the picture and showing them how you're able to execute over the course of time to give them that level of, of assurance that, that you might be able to find that direction towards success with your management team. How did you guys think about traction and metrics and were you able to convey those in order to really create that trust so that, you know, perhaps other people that are listening that are thinking about their own fundraising journeys too, you know, like some, some, I guess, you know, to get inspiration from perhaps your own guys' journey. Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say one of the biggest learning curves for me in my entrepreneurial journey was around fundraising. It's just, it's the thing you've never done until you've done it. And it's hard to approximate. And then you can have worked in product or marketing and understand what that's like. And I think it's easy to psych yourself out, but ultimately all of this, whether it's working with your board and we're fortunate to have a great board, working with investors, hiring, building a team, it's all about just human relationships. It really boils down to that and about building relationships with other people. That comes down to trust, right? And I think sometimes folks worry, well, if I talk about my idea, maybe someone will steal it, things like that. But I think it's much more likely that people want to help you. The beautiful thing about the entrepreneurial ecosystem is people generally want to help each other. And so, you know, whether it's an investor or another startup founder, reaching out and and sharing your ideas and getting feedback and having a conversation and understanding what, how they see the idea, where they see the strengths and weaknesses. And when you get feedback from someone, that, that's just their perspective on what they would do. That doesn't mean you have to do it. You have conviction and kind of, you know, your ideas, but also that you can always get smarter. And when you work, you know, investors are incredibly intelligent people for the most part, they can give you great feedback. And, and then you build that relationship and that trust. And there's also something powerful about being open to the relationship, allowing yourself to be a little bit vulnerable, which it is. I, I've, one of my favorite lines I've heard from someone else was, vulnerability is the currency of human relationships. It's how you build relationships. And then, and then building trust is often about just helping, you know, sharing your vision, helping someone understand it, and then doing what you say you'll do. And so having a conversation with an investor, then checking in a month later or two months later, you know, or a quarter later and say, here's what we did. We said we were going to do it and we did it. And, and that among, especially folks who don't have a previous, you know, working relationship can be incredibly powerful. And I guess we're being open and authentic about what the journey has been and what you have in front of you. I mean, some founders are perhaps a little bit worried about being too open or too transparent. So, so what do you have to say about that? And also to them? It, it's a great question. I think two things. One, investors get thousands of pitches. They know. They can smell it, right? So you're better off being authentic because they see the body language, they hear in your tone, your language. Generally, people are going to read and have a sense for where things are. And the best thing you can be is be yourself. One of my, one of my earliest pieces of advice I got from a friend who's also an entrepreneur was, there's no one way to do it. You have to be authentic to yourself and your style and your personality. And no one's perfect. You're going to be better at some things and worse at some things, but be open and honest with yourself, be open and honest with other people about it. Um, you'll get better advice, you'll get more help. And, and, and that's really important. I think that level of authenticity, people want to work with people who are authentic. And whether you're adding someone to your team or adding an investor to your cap table, they're committing to working with you for a long time. You know, and so so you want to be able to build that relationship uh, in a way that can be healthy, not just, you know, it's not just a transaction, right? It's not yeah. just fundraising event. It's a long-term relationship. And if you approach it that way, I think investors uh, appreciate that. And, and they know everything isn't going great all the time, 
right? Sometimes you can feel the pressure as an entrepreneur to say, no, everything's great all the time. And there's never a point where everything's great all the time. There's always something. And yeah. I think the extent you can be open about that, I think you also have more credibility that when you say something's going great, it really is because you actually tell them when it's not going great as well. Now, in terms of the operation, Caribou, you know, for the people that are listening to get a, a better sense, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of uh, number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, we've, one of the things I'm really fortunate that we did was invested early in in culture and the team because we've hired so quickly and we've grown through a pandemic obviously and, and and you know I don't think anyone really had that on their bingo card what that has allowed us to do is to be intentional about our culture and to have a strong culture so every company has a culture and to communicate and signal and then people who are a good fit for your culture can opt into that culture because they understand who you are and what you're about. And we're a mission-driven you know, company. We're a values-led company. Our values are our kind of cultural operating system. And ultimately, your culture is your product. It's how you get you know, your, your team members to join. And, obvi and obviously, great people you know, create great experiences, create value, build great companies. And so that's kind of really what it's all about for us, the way that's operationalized. When the pandemic started, we were roughly 40 people. And we're over 400 today. Wow. And, and so, you know, we, we grew over 300 people last calendar year. Um, we're going to go through a similar journey this year in terms of growth. Revenue growth has followed a, a steeper trajectory in a positive way. And so we're really excited about that. We crossed a billion dollars in loans last year. So uh, we're really getting to scale and, and building the teams, the structures and support. You know, there's that phase of product market fit. And then once you have product market fit, it's all about scale building the management structures, empowering the team, hiring great leaders, uh, having the right coaches. The other thing I'd say about coaching is coaching is invaluable. Uh, some folks think that, you know, sometimes there's a stigma that coaching is what you get when you're not doing a good job. And I think it's really important for us as entrepreneurs to kind of destigmatize that and talk about coaching as, as a critical asset. I've had a coach the entire time through Caribou and it's been an incredible process. And getting coaching for members of the team, getting the right advisors, surrounding your team with the right folks who can help them self-actualize, you know, and be uh, their best selves and improve. And, and it's, it's really an incredible, incredibly freeing perspective when you get there. And, you know, your goal is to hire great people and that's a huge investment and then invest in their success and investing in your own success as well. And so coaching can be a, a huge a huge asset. Uh, you can get that through formal coaching, through informal advisors or a formal advisory board. But uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of finding the right mentors and coaches. And I've heard you say that your culture is your product, you know, here as, as we're talking about people. Can you, can you expand on that? Yeah, I, I think when you think about the leading indicators as opposed to lagging indicators. So like a lagging indicator is revenue or brand. But the leading indicator is what creates that. And obviously, you've got to build the product. You've got to acquire the customers, et cetera. But before any of that, you have to bring the right group of people together to build the organization, to build the product, to build out marketing, to build you know, the engineering team, to, to build it all, right? And you know, it, it's in, culture is incredibly important. There was, I think, a, a very old school view of capitalism that you know, what was known as HR was effectively a cost center and you should spend as little as possible on it, minimize it and everything else. And I think, you know, I'm a big believer in stakeholder capitalism and the view that you, you really should be flipping that on, on its head. 
that actually people and culture, as we call it, is the heart that pumps the blood through the, the body. And if that organization isn't really high quality and isn't really healthy, the rest of the organization won't be healthy. You won't be able to hire great people, retain great people, build the culture you want. And so being proactive and seeing a little further down the field and focusing on building a great culture can not only help you attract talent, but keep talent and actually differentiate yourself in the market. And I think uh, culture is actually one of the only sustainable competitive advantages out there. You know, someone else can rip off your UI or your pricing model or something else, but you can invite your competitor in your office. They can see your culture and they can't just go copy it. And so if you get that recipe right with culture, it sets you up to have a, a really great and exciting path and to be financially successful, yes, but also to create a community and an organization that people really want to be a part of. And that can be extremely powerful. And imagine you go to sleep tonight. Kevin, and you and you wake up in a world where the vision of Caribou is fully realized. What what does that world look like? It's a great question. I mean, in some ways, we've been going through these exercises as, as we get traction and continue to grow. There, one of the fun things about the space we're in is as we get deeper in the space, the opportunities continue to present themselves. There's just more and more innovation and transformation we can do in the space, and so. You know, I, th I think we're pretty far from a world where where it's solved. But I think what we're aiming to do is transform consumers' financial relationship with their cars, right? And and, and how do we do that? I think when you look at startups and trends about how do you make illiquid assets liquid? How do you help consumers leverage what is the largest or second largest asset in their lives and actually? make it a financial asset and feel like a financial asset, not feel like a liability. There are so many opportunities and ways to do that. And so I think we're really excited about how can we, you know, build a much more sophisticated ecosystem in auto fintech. And there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there to do that. So, um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine getting, getting all the way there. There's, there's a, a ton to do. We're really excited about it. And, you know, I, I think, the other thing, and, and sometimes some folks will ask you this question is, I think it's also okay to not know the answer to questions. And this is another thing to kind of be comfortable with, like, and kind of be comfortable with discomfort sometimes. You know, what would happen after that? I honestly don't know. I'm so focused on this. It's, it's really exciting. And I think there's just, the, the deeper we get into it, the more opportunity we see. So it's really exciting. Nice. And one of the questions that I typically ask the folks that come on the show is, Imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time with all this knowledge, you know, wealth of knowledge that you've been able to acquire. I bring you back in time, you know, and you have the opportunity of speaking with your younger self, with that younger Kevin, maybe that younger Kevin, you know, back in 2015 that was launching, you know, his first company. Imagine you were able to have a chat with that younger self and you were able to tell that younger Kevin one piece of business advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? It's a great question. I think it's actually more life advice. I mean, I think my instinct is to say, believe in yourself and stay focused. There's a lot of noise. There are a lot of people who have different opinions and advice, and some of it's great and some of it's not great, or it's great advice for someone else, but not for you. And, and also, as we talked about, you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation, it's a roller coaster. There are good times, there are bad times. But believing in yourself and staying focused to and being authentic 
to your vision, to yourself as a human being uh, is so critical. And I think it's, you know, especially when we're earlier in our lives, uh, sometimes you don't know yourself as well, or sometimes you don't have the confidence in, in the person you are becoming or will become. But, but have confidence in that person and your vision for that person and believe in yourself, stay focused. And, and when you hit hard time, shake it off and keep going. And I, I think that's advice I've only gained more conviction on in over time and, and I think is incredibly powerful for people. I love it. I love it. So, Kevin, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Check us out at gocaribou.com at the website. Uh, look us up on social media, uh, active uh, Twitter and uh, social accounts for the company. And uh, check us out. I would say we can save most people money. So hopefully we can also save you some money uh, along the journey. Amazing. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Great. Thanks so much. Take care. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.